welcome back Your dreams were your ticket out Welcome back To that same old place that you laughed about Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Stephen King cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Each week, I will review one entry in the bibliography of Stephen King in chronological order of publication. And what I'm doing this week is just checking in, seeing how everyone's doing. I'm saying hi. I'm going to uh, go through a bunch of Stephen King news stories that have been hitting the internet over the last month or so. So I'm going to catch us all up for that and then just get us ready for summertime season and with that means that we are going to be getting weekly Stephen King cast episodes uh, for at least <clears throat> for at least eight weeks so hopefully more than that but for the duration of this summer please expect that while you're lounging on the beach or working in the yard or doing whatever you're doing in the summer whether you're you know flipping some burgers on the grill or lounging in the pool you can do so while listening the Stephen King cast. So it's crazy to think, but here we are. We're midway through May, and before we know it, um, summer will be in, in full bloom, and I can't wait for it. And I want to celebrate with all of you by having, I, I can't think of a better way to spend my summer than by locking myself in my house and recording in front of a computer. But, uh, but honestly, I, I am excited. I'm excited to be back on a weekly basis for the time being. So here is what this episode is going to be. Like I said, I'm going to review a bunch of news. Then I'm going to talk about what to expect uh, for the Stephen King cast for uh, the the summer. And uh, then, then we'll take it from there. Okay, guys. So before I get into that, the first thing I want to do is read... Um, an iTunes review that came in since my last podcast episode, and this is from KingCast Fan, who writes, The five-star rating scale does not do this podcast justice. It is beyond incredible and dives deep into the works of the greatest author of all time. The host is extremely likable, and the content is top-notch. I can't stress enough how highly I recommend this podcast to anyone who is a fan of kings or literature in general. Anyways, just wanted to voice my support for what I see as the greatest podcast in existence. Um, So thank you, KingCast fan. Um, And anyone out there that's listening that hasn't done so already, a, a very quick iTunes review would go a long way in helping me out. As it currently stands... The Stephen King cast is the highest rated Stephen King podcast on iTunes. And that's a pretty cool feat and accomplishment. Um, and the only way I'm going to be able to stay that way is with the support of, of fans like you. I sound like I'm on um, PBS right now. But um, that's the only way I'm going to be able to, to hold on to that. So if you haven't done so already, feel free to just head on over to iTunes and then uh, just leave a quick review. Like I said, it will really help keep the, the, the Stephen King cast towards the top of the the search for Stephen King, which I believe more and more people are going to continue to search out Stephen King because we still happen to be existing within the the reign of the king, which really cemented itself once once it hit last year. But once it chapter two or part two starts gearing up again, um, where it, it, it's going to re-solidify the fact that this this uh, King Anasans or the reign of the king is still going strong. So the the only way that I can guarantee more listenership would be if you know there's some good reviews and ratings and subscriptions out there. So if you have a couple minutes, that would be great. Up next, I'm going to read uh, some emails uh, because I've been behind in my emails. And up first, we have Jennifer Barnes and spoiler alert for the Dark Tower series. Jennifer writes, Dear Constant Reader, I finally finished the Dark Tower series and I wanted to share some thoughts. 
First of all, thank you for your stellar episodes on Wolves of the Kala, Song of Susanna, and The Dark Tower. While these are not my favorites of King's books, I think they are some of your best episodes. Your love of the material is clear and contagious, and your analysis really added to my overall enjoyment of the series. I especially loved hearing about how your perspective has changed over the years, because I've definitely noticed that in my own journey through King's works. I have some thoughts about the ending, but first, I have a theory about why so many King fans don't like the Dark Tower books. I was a longtime Tower avoider, and when I began my chronological reread, I actually considered skipping them. I could just not get into the Gunslinger, and if I didn't love King so much, I would have given up right there. So here's my theory. I realized while talking with a friend about the story Uncle Otto's Truck from Skeleton Crew that I am not a visual person reader. My friend kept talking about the red truck, and I could have sworn it was orange. Turns out, I'm embarrassed to say, I was picturing Bella's orange truck from Twilight. Not that I read Twilight or anything. I realized that when I read, I'm not creating images in my head based on the descriptions, but making connections to the images already in my head from life or pop culture, if that makes sense. The streets in the regulators look like the street I grew up on, and I have no idea what Nick Andros is supposed to look like. He'll always be Rob Lowe to me. The King books I love, Stan, The Misery, The Shining, Pet Cemetery, are all much more grounded in reality. I know what a hotel looks like, and I've been through the Lincoln Tunnel, so I'm not constantly having to create my own imagery. It might not look exactly right in my head, but it's close enough for government work. I don't read much fantasy because I have a harder time picking up the visual details. That said, I really connect to King's characters and how they're feeling. I think that's part of why I love his writing in general. He's so good at getting into the heads of his characters and allowing us to empathize with them. As I was reading the series, I remember loving the characters but not remembering what part of Midworld they were currently in. If not for references like Emerald City and the Snitches, I might have been totally lost. In a nutshell, I disliked The Talisman, mostly set in a fantasy world, but I enjoyed Black House, mostly set in our world. Speaking of Black House, I was really disturbed by some of the off-screen deaths in that book, and it made me nervous for The Outsider. Anyways, that's just a theory I've been kicking around. I'd love to hear what you think. I had a really uneven time with this series. Parts of it I loved, um, like the drawing of the three, not calling out any books. Uh, there were sections that I really, really disliked. That said, I loved the ending. I found it hopeful and was surprised to hear that so many saw Roland. And again, spoiler alert, everybody. Um, I found it hopeful and was surprised to hear that so many people saw Roland as cursed. If you look at reaching the top of the tower as death, then Roland gets a second chance to redeem himself. His mistakes don't have to stand because he gets another chance to make a different choice. Instead of being damned forever, he gets as many chances as it takes to redeem himself. Yes, his journey is hard, and he has to go through some dark times, but he also gets to meet Jake, Susanna, Eddie, and Oi again and relive all of the happiness that they bring him. If the joy truly is in the journey, then he gets to experience it all over again. In, if Stephen King is Roland's twinner, perhaps this is him thinking about his own life and confronting mortality. I know that it's made me think about mine. What unattainable things have I been obsessed and sacrificed for in vain? What regrets will I have when I reach the end? I imagine King might say the substances he's abused have been a sort of tower for him. I'm grateful for the chance to examine my life and try to think about what my tower is while I have time to turn away from it. I could see my life as a series of trips to the top of the tower with each one another chance to start again, maybe, hopefully, a little stronger and a little wiser. I do have to disagree with you on one thing, though. I don't think Franny is the mother of the Crimson King. I'm just kidding. Um, so for anyone that is listening, that is an inside joke among Stephen King, uh, among the listeners of the Stephen King cast. It's about Oi. 
Oi is the one who warns Roland that Mordred is about to attack and saves his life. If Oi had gone through the door with Susanna, Roland never would have made it to the tower. Was it necessary to impale him on a tree? Probably not. But one thing I love about Stephen King is that he's not afraid to kill his darlings. He's often talked about how he lets his characters guide him through the stories and doesn't patronize us or them by giving them false happy endings. I love that he, would, he wouldn't tell us that Jake, Eddie, and Susanna lived happily ever after because no one does. We each owe death. We each owe a death, and how many of us will actually get the one we want or deserve? Always death breaks my heart, but I can accept it because I trust King to tell me the truth. As far as deaths go, I love those of Flag and the Crimson King. I think a lot about what Father Callahan says in Salem's Lot about evil with a little e and a big e. The older I get, the more I think that there is no big e evil. It's all just little e, and we make it bigger by giving it our fear. The Crimson King reminds me a lot of Greg Stilson. His power comes mostly from fear. When both are revealed to be full of nothing but hot air and hate, it's pretty simple to defeat them. Like Freddy Krueger, we take their power away by refusing to be afraid of them. Think of the mirror of this in the Quartet. Over and over again, King's heroes stop giving power to their enemies and give it to each other through the bonds of love and friendship, and that's how they're usually able to succeed or at least survive. One more thing, if Eddie has a pop culture twinner, it has to be Jesse Pinkman. He's my favorite character in the series, and I can't imagine anyone but Aaron Paul playing him. I think Naomi Harris would make a great Susanna, possibly because I've recently watched 28 Days Later. Jim and Selena in the movie remind me a lot of Eddie and Susanna. Finally, thank you so much for reading my email about Gerald's game. I want to thank you for your kind words of acknowledgement and support. Please don't feel like you have to respond to that specific email. Um... So again, thank you so much for all of your hard work on the podcast. It really is my favorite. May you have long days and pleasant nights, Jennifer. So Jennifer, thank you so much for writing in again. Um, this was a great, great email. Um, very, very thoughtful. I think that your your insight into your own reading experience and what it means to be a reader in terms of the visualization process is, that's key. I mean, no two people read exactly the same way. Um, you know, and we all bring a lot of subjectivity uh, when we are reading a book. So the, your thought process, that was, that was a great, thank you for, for, for sharing that. Um, and then with your interpretation of the end of the, the Dark Tower, that is a very, very hopeful and kind um, reading. And it makes perfect sense, and that's, it's well argued. Um, so it really comes down to which, which uh, interpretation you prefer. And I like yours. Um, that's, that's really, really, I've never thought of it that way. Okay, up next we have uh, Daryl. Hey, constant reader. Uh, the subject really says it all, but I'll do my best to put this into a few more words. From as early on as I can remember, I've been a huge Stephen King fan. Like yourself, my journey into the King universe began with the mother of all King novels, It. I was 10 years old when I first read It. It was a brick of a paperback with the cover depicting a paper boat, a sewer grate, and a sinister claw making its way through the said grate. <clears throat> At the age of 10, I should have been terrified reading this book, and sure, I did have to check under my bed from time to time just to be sure Pennywise wasn't waiting to grab me. Instead of pushing me away, the terror pulled me in. King's writing intrigued me. It made me love the Losers Club. It made me fear for them. It made me want to read more from the Stephen King guy. It says a lot for the universality of King's works that a 10-year-old kid from Newfoundland could relate to characters living in a, 1950s, uh, dairy, in a fictional 1950s Dairy, Maine. When it should have been a frightening cave, King's novels were a bright light for me. All this is to say that your podcast has rekindled a love for the works of Stephen King in me that never truly went out. 
I've read a lot of what King has to offer, but I haven't read it all. Now, with your podcast as an inspiration, I'm going to revisit, or experience for the first time, as the case may be, the works of Stephen King. I just finished my first ever reading of Carrie, I know, I know, followed by a quick listen to your first ever episode. You're right. King had something special from the start. His ability to make you care for the characters, to love and hate them, it's unrivaled. And his ability to create a foreboding atmosphere in all, in all works at all times is mesmerizing. I'm into Salem's lot now, second go around for this one, and I look forward to the entry in your podcast very much. After that, I just want to say thank you for helping me rediscover the love of King's novels that began 29 years ago. Whoa. Keep up the great work. I really greatly admire and appreciate it. Float on, constant reader, Daryl. Daryl, thank you for writing in, um, and I'm excited that you have the entirety of the, the Stephen King works in front of you to, 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 to move through. Um, so guys, if you haven't done so already, feel free to write in. I can't do this without you. Um, I know that I haven't really been putting out a lot of podcast episodes lately, but that's going to change. And one way um, that I, I like to kick off every episode is reading some some uh, listener reviews, or I'm sorry, listener emails. So write into Stephen Kingcast at yahoo.com and I'll share your thoughts on air and continue our, our conversation. Okay, with that said, guys, we have some news items. So when last we, we talked, uh, one of the things that I had discussed was um, that there was some movement with um, it. It was originally going to be called Chapter 2. It looks like it's going to be called Part 2 now. Um, but uh, at the time, Jessica Chastain was circling the project. Um, there hasn't been, I don't believe there's been an official confirmation that Jessica Chastain will, will join the project as... As Bev, as an adult Bev, it makes sense. Um, she has worked with Andy Muschietti before with Mama, um, and she would just be, she'd be incredible in the role. So, I mean, she was one of the first people that everyone talked about when um, it concluded, when everyone started prognosticating and fantasizing about who they wanted the adult versions of the kids to be. And, you know, Jessica Chastain was, was right up there, and it looks like she is interested, so I hope that it works. The other name that was bandied about um, as much as Jessica Chastain was Bill Hader. His name was thrown around a lot um, uh, as uh, on the top of everyone's wish list for a uh, grown-up Richie. Well, it looks like the, the great turtle in the sky has heard our prayers and has sent down the reality of what we wanted our dreams to be, which is Bill Hader looks like is going to be Richie Tozier, which is phenomenal casting. So I don't know, I don't know, guys. I don't know if you have what your experience with Bill Hader is, if it's if purely from uh, Saturday Night Live or not. Um, but here is, all you have to do is just look through cinema history. And if you find comedians who are acting in dramatic roles, they succeed because in comedy, you have to play a, a myriad of emotions and play different roles and be able to hit simultaneously a dramatic and comedic beat. So you are fine-tuned to an emotional range. I don't think that dramatic actors have a as fine a, a grasp on. This isn't to take away from dramatic actors, but this is why so many comedic actors are able to shine in multiple roles, whereas some dramatic actors, they have difficulty making a transition from drama to comedy. Now, with that said, um, Bill Hader has been someone that is able to be hilarious, just laugh out loud funny, um, 
but he's also someone that has been able to hit the dramatic beats. Um, I don't know if anyone has seen um, Skeleton Twins, but that is a, a great example of what Bill Hader is able to do. Um, and the current HBO show, Barry, also is a, a great example of what you can see from, from Bill Hader's acting range. So he can, he can do it all. And so being a fast-talking, wise-ass, um, slightly burned um, adult... That is that is well within his wheelhouse, and he has the gravitas for it. He has the the likability for it. He has the the comedic chops, the dramatic chops. He has um, there's something that you radiate towards. And Richie in the books was a leader, and if Bill hadn't been there, Richie would have been the one to lead the group. So he has that within him as well. So I fully support the the, the choice of Bill Hader as as Richie Tozier. And I also support James McAvoy as Bill. This one is not being received as well online. A lot of people don't like um, James McAvoy, it seems. And I don't understand why, because this dude oozes charisma. Um, I never thought that um, anyone would be able to take away Professor X from um, Patrick Stewart. But James McAvoy did a great job giving us a young, passionate, um, flirtatious... uh, James uh, Charles Xavier, and that's all because of James McAvoy. The dude is really, really good. He he can do. He is he is very, very charming. He's very, very engaging. And the idea of him playing the leader of the group that is not hard to imagine. That is a solid casting choice. So I'm really, really looking forward to seeing what he brings to the role. Can't wait to see him um, bouncing off his right hand man, Bill Hader. Him interacting with Jessica Chastain, and I can't wait to see. Who is lined up next? If our first three leads that have been announced are Bill Hader, James McAvoy, and Jessica Chastain, that's some serious casting. That is not the casting that you typically see going into movies. So if they round out the Losers Club with other big-name characters, like at this point, I would put all money on Sterling K. Brown being in this movie as as Mike. Um, so I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if... The, the, the remaining losers are also big names um, because, you know, they, they know that Warner Brothers knows that they have a hit on their hands. They know that everyone's going to see this movie and agents, I'm sure, are just throwing their actors at this movie because it's going to be a hit and they want their their actors and their clients attached to this project. So I, I, I'm really looking forward to see what, what happens next. Other than that, there isn't much it news, um, but I will, um, I'll fill you in uh, once I hear more. I also talked about the Tommy Knockers. I had re-released my episode of the Tommy Knockers when it was announced that it was going to be made. Um, there was an adaptation. They were just shopping it around. It looks like it's landed at Universal. So take that for what you what you will. Um, I don't really have much of an opinion on that um, because it's still uh, James Wan behind it, and I can't wait to see what he he brings to it because The Conjuring and um, Insidious are fantastic. Uh, horror movies, and I look forward to seeing what he's able to bring to this incredibly zany, crazy um, Stephen King story. And then in one of the the, the most recent Stephen King news, and I'm going to read this from Variety, um, we have 
as you know, we had some Stephen King uh, Netflix movies that had come out last year. We had Gerald's Game and 1922. Well, it looks like Netflix likes their partnership with Stephen King, and they're then they're going to continue. But they're not going to continue just with Stephen King. They're going to continue with Joe Hill, Stephen King's son as well. Because for those of you who don't know, a couple years ago, the father and son duo collaborated with a... They, they did a couple short stories together, but one that I that really stuck with me um, is one called In the Tall Grass, and Netflix is going to be making that into a movie. So let me read this from Variety. Netflix has picked up movie rights to the horror story In the Tall Grass, a novella written by Stephen King and his son Joe Hill, with James Marston in talks to star in a film adaptation. The streaming giant has tapped Vincent Vincenzo Natale, director of Cube and Splice, to helm from his own script. Producers are Steve Hoban, uh, Jeremy Miller, and M. Riley. Filming is scheduled to begin this summer in Toronto. In the Tall Grass was first published in 2012. The story centers on a pair of inseparable siblings, Becky and Cal. Becky finds out during her sophomore year of college that she is pregnant, leading her parents to suggest she go live with her aunt and uncle until the baby is born. Since it is spring break, Cal decides to accompany her on a cross-country trip. After driving for three days, they stop at a field of tall grass after they hear a little boy named Tobin calling for help. Cal thinks he hears Tobin just a few feet inside the field and dives in for him, only to end up lying in a puddle of gritty water. New Line's It became Hollywood's most successful adaptation of King's works last year with a $700 million, with $700 million in worldwide box office. The sequel will be released in September 2019. Um, so it's a funny way to just end um, the, the discussion on uh, In the Tall Grass. But that, after driving three days, they stop at a field of tall grass after they hear a little boy named Tobin calling for help. Cal thinks he hears Tobin just a few feet inside the field and dies for him only to end up lying in a puddle of gritty water. Does not do it justice. It is a very disturbing read. Um... I don't know if they're going to be able to really capture what makes it so horrifying because it really gets under your skin. Uh, it's very, it's very bleak. It's very surreal. Um, it creates its own logic for the reader and for the characters. It's very, very potent, very powerful. Um, and what's great is that this is going to give me an excuse to read it all over again. And then, in really big news, and fingers crossed for this one, um, this is from Slash Film, and here is the headline um, written by Chris Evangelista. The talisman movie, Spielberg might finally adapt the Stephen King and Peter Straub novel. Stephen, King, um, Stephen Spielberg snapped up the rights to Stephen King and Peter Straub's novel, The Talisman, before the book even hit shelves. Yet, after 35 years... A film has yet to materialize. Materialize Now, Spielberg says he might finally be ready to bring the Talisman movie to the screen. In 1984, Stephen King and Peter Straub released The Talisman, a fantasy novel involving alternate dimensions and strange creatures. Anyone could see the story had all the makings of a good movie, including Steven Spielberg. Spielberg purchased the rights to the film to The Talisman before publication and had a script commissioned, but nothing ever came of it. Now, Spielberg might be ready to finally adapt The Talisman to the big screen. During a new Entertainment Weekly interview with King and Spielberg, the subject of the talisman came up, with King saying several times Spielberg came very close to making it, and there were lots of discussions about that. Spielberg then added, I feel that in the very near future, that's going to be our richest collaboration. Universal bought the book for me, so it wasn't optioned. It was an outright sale of the book. I've owned the book since 1982, and I'm hoping to get this movie made in the next couple years. I'm not committing it to the project as a director. I'm just saying that's something that I've wanted to see come to theaters for the last 35 years. 
Spielberg saying, I'm not committing to the project as a director could indicate, could indicate he intends to let someone else helm. Frank Marshall was attached at one point while he himself produces. Or it could mean he's not ready to say he's definitely making the talisman, but it's certainly on his mind. Time will tell. Adaptations of King's works are very popular right now. After the box office success of It, more and more King-related films are getting into the green light, including a remake of Pet Cemetery and a new adaptation of The Tommyknockers. What is a talisman? After the success of books like Carrie and The Shining, King had become the number one name in horror. While not nearly as popular, Straub was like the UK's answer to King, penning chilly horror novels like Ghost Story and Shadowland. In the 1970s, King and his family moved to London. There, King and Straub became friends. After King returned to America, the two remained close, and they decided to collaborate on a novel. That novel was The Talisman. Here's the synopsis. Jack Sawyer, 12 years old, is about to begin a most fantastic journey, an exalting, terrifying quest for the mystical talisman, the only thing that can save Jack's dying mother. But to reach his goal, Jack must make his way not only across the breadth of the United States, but also through the wondrous and menacing parallel world of the territories. In the territories, Jack finds another realm, where the air is so sweet and clear a man can smell a radish being pulled from the ground even a mile away, and life can be snuffed out instantly in the continuing struggle between good and evil. Here, Jack discovers twinners, reflections of the people he knows on Earth, most notably Queen Laura, the twinner of Jack's own imperiled mother. As Jack flips between worlds, making his way westward toward the redemptive talisman, a sequence of heart-stopping encounters challenges him at every step. The Talisman, from page to screen. As the EW piece points out, Spielberg, Spielberg once attempted to adapt the talisman to a TNT miniseries, but it didn't work out. At that time, it was just too rich for TNT's blood, Spielberg says. I then pulled it back and decided to try to reconfigure it once again as a feature film. This incident is just one of many surrounding the so far fruitless attempt to bring the talisman from page to screen. As Spielberg says, he purchased the talisman rights in 1982 before the book even hit shelves. After the purchase, King and Straub met with the filmmaker to attempt to hash out the movie adaptation. Spielberg fell in love with the book before it was published and persuaded Universal to buy the film rights, co-author Peter Straub said in 1996. Um, Stephen King and I went to the Amblin offices on the Universal lot for a long meeting during which it became clear that Spielberg had a great understanding of the story and would have made a wonderful film of the book. However, the project got shelved, but because they bought the book for a considerable sum, I still think they might do it this way sometime in the future, and I think it would make a great miniseries, but we shall see. Since then, the project has languished. In 2008, Frank Marshall confirmed he was still hoping to adapt the book into a film with Spielberg producing. It's back to being a movie, Marshall told IGN. It's kind of on the back burner since we're waiting to see how everything shakes out with DreamWorks, Paramount, and the Amblin thing. Okay, so that's that. My thoughts on this. Look, Stephen King and Steven Spielberg are not getting any younger. Um, and it is a, a true shame that we have never seen a, 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 a true collaboration between these two. Um, Steven Spielberg, in this, in this interview with Entertainment Weekly, it's not quoted here, but he said something along the lines of, of he and Stephen King being brothers because their sensibilities are, are so similar. You know, they, they both grew up in the same uh, you know, era, the same decade. They, they both have the same interests, um, passions. They both um, hit the big time around the same time, and they both, um, one as a, a filmmaker, the other as an author, both truly helped shape uh, our storytelling sensibilities, which can be seen 
in Stranger Things, which is a love letter to both of the Stevens. So for us to never see a collaboration between these two in which um, Steven Spielberg has adapted something by Stephen King, it's a shame. So I know that, that Steven Spielberg says that he isn't committed to directing it. He needs to direct it. I don't want to see... If he owns the rights to this and it's going to come from Amblin, I want to see what he gives us because one thing is for sure, The Talisman is a magical book and no one does magical. And I don't mean wizardry. I just mean the sense of the magic and the sublime and the wonder of being a child and embarking on a journey. Nobody does that like Steven Spielberg. So I imagine that if Steven Spielberg were to be able to do this, he would be able to get the heart of it. Um, I'm sure you could change everything about it and I would still love it. Um, I mean, just look at Jurassic Park. Jurassic Park is nothing like Michael Crichton's novel. I love Michael Crichton's novel. I love um, Steven Spielberg's Jurassic Park because he took the, the, the heart of it and the concept of the story and then he went with it and said, I wanna make this about wonder and magic. Um, and it worked. It's exhilarating. It's breathless. It's, it's, a, it's a true magical piece of cinema. Um, so Steven Spielberg being in charge of The Talisman is probably the greatest Stephen King news that, that could hit. Um, and I just fingers crossed that, that that all works out because I want to see that happen. Also, um, this is from Deadline, written by um, Andreas Wiseman. Stephen King's novella, The Gingerbread Girl, gets a movie deal with Brainstorm Media. Stephen King's novel, The Gingerbread Girl, has been optioned by U.S. production and distribution outfit Brainstorm Media, which plans to distribute the film in North America. Frequent collaborator uh, Craig R. Baxley will direct the film from a screenplay written by King and Baxley. Mitchell Gallen will produce... Casting is currently uh, underway. Baxley has pre previously directed the King adaptations Storm of the Century, The Triangle, Kingdom Hospital, and Rose Red, while Gallen produced the adaptations of King's Pet Cemetery, The Stand, Thinner, The Night Flyer, Creepshow 2, The Langoliers, and The Golden Years. So, of all of those movies that are listed, I happen to like one two, three of the one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. Um, so that is not filling me with a lot of confidence, but oh well. The story continues. The, gun, the gingerbread girl originally appeared in Esquire magazine and was later included in King's 2008 collection of stories just after sunset. The story focuses on Emily, a woman recovering from a recent loss in a secluded house in the loneliest stretch of New England. She avoids contact with her husband and her father and channels her grief into the grueling daily running regimen. This is her doing all kinds of good until one day she makes the mistake of looking into the driveway of a man named Pickering. Pickering also enjoys privacy, but the young woman he brings to his home suffer the consequences of knowing him. The tension hinges on whether M will be next. We are excited to be working with Craig and Mitchell on this film. This cat and mouse thriller will appeal to Stephen King fans everywhere, Brainstorm Media says. You cannot find a more valuable or bankable name than Stephen King in today's market, and this pulse-pounding thriller with memorable characters and gripping tension will be exactly what buyers are looking for in Cannes, said Radiant CEO Mimi Steinbauer. 
Okay, so that's something else to be looking forward to. I'm not quite sure how I feel about that, but like I said, time will tell. There are two pet cemetery stories that I want to share with you guys, um, both from Slash Film. Um, I had announced this on um, my Twitter and Facebook page, but um, from Chris Evangelista, he writes John Lithgow joins Pet Cemetery remake cast as Judd Crandall. Perfect casting alert. John Lithgow has joined the Pet Cemetery remake cast. Lithgow will play Judd Crandall, the kindly old man, old man who introduces his new neighbor to an ancient burial ground that has the power to resurrect the dead. We'll soon be able to hear John Lithgow utter the words, Sometimes dead is better. Entertainment Weekly reveals Lithgow is the latest addition to the Pet Cemetery remake cast. Recently, Jason Clark was announced to be in talks for the lead role of Lewis Creed, and now with Lithgow's addition, it's clear that this film is shaping up to have a very strong cast. Lithgow will play Judd Crandall, a part originally inhabited by Fred Gwynn in the 1989 film adaptation of Pet Cemetery. Judd is a lifelong resident of Ludlow, Maine, who befriends his new neighbors, the Creeds. One day, the Creed family cat is run down on the road. Judd decides to remedy the situation by introducing Creed family patriarch Lewis to the Micmac Burial Ground, an ancient Native American graveyard nestled deep inside the woods. But this is no ordinary patch of land. It actually has the power to resurrect the dead. And once Lewis buries the family cat in that supernatural earth, the feline rises from the grave and comes home. Even if you've never seen the 1989 film or read Stephen King's book, you can probably guess that it's not long before a dead human being ends up buried in that cursed graveyard. Lithgow is a great actor, and adding him to the cast is a masterstroke. Fred Gwynn did an excellent job in the 89 film, but I'm very interested to see what Lithgow brings to the role. The entire project has my full attention. Pet Cemetery is my favorite Stephen King novel, and while the 1989 film was pretty solid adaptation, there are a lot of details that were left out of the film that could work perfectly in a new take on the material. Kevin Kolsch and Dennis Widmeyer, directors of the disturbing indie horror film Starry Eyes, are helming the new film with a script by Midnight Meat Train writer Jeff Bueller. We've entered a new golden age of Stephen King adaptations. For a long stretch of time, adaptations of King's work seem relegated to direct-to-video sequels or made-for-TV movies. Last year's It changed all that. The film was a monster hit and kicked off a whole new wave of films adapted from King's work. Since then, more and more King-inspired films and TV shows have been announced, including The Bone Church, Tommy Knocker's Talisman, The Stand, The Long Walk, Castle Rock, and of course, It, Chapter 2. So, thoughts on that. Um, yeah, Lithgow is, he is, who doesn't like John Lithgow? The question is, how is he going to play it? I mean, is he going to play it up? Um, is he going to just go full on caricature? I love the performance by Fred Gwynn, um, but it is so over the top. Um, and we know that John Lithgow can go over the top. It remains, what is this movie going to be? Um, I'm going to read one more article, then I'll discuss that, but I am full behind the John Lithgow casting. He's not someone that I ever would have thought of in the role, but he'll be great um, no matter what the tone is, what they want from it. So I'm going to read this next thing again from uh, Chris Evangelista from Slash Film. Pet Cemetery remake screenwriter Jeff Bueller offered an update on the upcoming Stephen King adaptation, and everything he said about the film sounds pretty darn exciting. As Bueller tells it, he and directors Dennis Widmeyer and Kevin Kolsch are setting out to make one of the scariest Stephen King adaptations ever. It's a great time to be a Stephen King fan. Um, adaptations of King's works are in high demand, and several high-profile takes on King's books will soon be headed to theaters. 
One such film is the new Pet Cemetery remake starring Jason Clark and John Lithgow. The film comes courtesy of Starry Eyes filmmakers uh, Dennis Widmeyer and Kevin Kolsch and Midnight Meat Train screenwriter Jeff Bueller. Bueller spoke with Dread Central about the remake and almost everything he said has made me even more excited for the project. When we first started our conversations, Dennis and Kelvin, Kevin and I really connected around the idea of bringing the story back to the source material to find a modern telling of the book that really spoke to some of the big scenes and big moments that Stephen King had originally written. And as much as us are, as much of us are huge fans of the original film, there are moments that are larger than life and feel borderline campy. Our desire was to tell a really grounded, character-driven, and psychologically horrifying version of Pet Cemetery, which, in my belief, is the scariest book that King ever wrote. I'm in agreement with Bueller on the last part. I've read almost all of King's novels, and while I'm a fan of a large portion of his books, Peckett Cemetery is the only novel that ever really scared me. There's a feeling of absolute dread that permeates the entire book to the point where it becomes almost unbearable. As for what audiences can expect from this new take on Pet Cemetery, uh, Bueller said, There may be Victor, there may be some Zelda, there will definitely be some Lewis and Rachel and Gage and Ellie. I will say this, if you love the book, you'll love this movie. Dennis and Kevin are both such visionaries in terms of how they've approached it from not only a horror standpoint, but also a character standpoint, and it's been really gratifying to work with these guys. I think we're on track to make it one of of the scariest Stephen King adaptations ever. That's our goal anyway. Um, so my thoughts on this is that, yes, the, um, original Pet Cemetery movie is one that I, I happen to like, but it, it really does dive into a sort of EC Comics Tales from the Crypt camp at times, especially in the end. It becomes ghoulish, um, and the end set piece is very, it becomes otherworldly when I think that the horror should be set in the everyday the more I think about Pat Cemetery, I think this needs to be straight up a movie made for adults with adult fears. You know, when I first saw it, you know, I was a kid and it doesn't, you know, Gage dying is, is, is terrible as a kid, but it's not the point. It's not supposed to be read by kids. Um, this is a horrifying concept on every level, from the death of a child to the resurrection of a child. It, it's, it is truly, truly upsetting. And this needs to not be a good film. It needs to be a really disturbing, upsetting film for it to to fulfill its potential, which is a really strange thing to say. But I want to walk out of it not really liking it, but thinking it was incredible. That's what I want of of a Pet Cemetery movie. Now, I've seen Starry Eyes. It's available on Netflix, I believe. Um, And I walked away from it. My my only impression was the the, the budget limitations kind of stick with me. So I, I don't know how much... I'm not a huge fan of indie movies. Um, so I, I, I need to put that out there, right there. I, I, I have a bias, so I don't know how objective I can be. I, I can't really get behind them because I see that the actors or directors are not working with the actors who typically they might want to work with or um, having the setting take place, you know, where they could or having the set dressing look the way that, you know, they really want. So maybe with a big budget, with a big studio behind it, um, the, the directors will be able to fulfill the potential. Um, now, Starry Eyes kind of checks all the boxes that I like in a movie. It's about um, the, the obsession of being a star in Hollywood and cults. So that's 
with the supernatural. So it it, it really really it was it was a really good story. I just don't like the the fulfillment of the execution, not because of the direction, um, because there are some really good sequences in there that um, were very imaginative. But really, it was just the the look of the movie, which was not within the director's control. So I'm excited to see what what these two are able to bring to Pet Cemetery, and I will definitely have more information as we um, head into the summer. Hopefully, hopefully that there's more. And then, Stanley, there's a lot of news out there from Entertainment Weekly. Stephen King's The Long Walk, headed to the big screen. New Line Cinema is going back to the Stephen King well. The Warner Brothers division, which last year adapted King's It as a blockbuster film, is working on bringing the author's 1979 novel The Long Walk to the big screen. Written by King under the pen name Richard Bachman, The Long Walk is set in a dystopian future America where 100 teenage boys are forced to participate in an annual walking contest under strict rules. The grueling race ends when only one walker is left alive. Ironically, Frank Darabont, who adapted The Walking Dead for television, previously acquired the rights to The Long Walk, but now James Vanderbilt will write and direct and produce the film for New Line. Uh, New Line, uh, The Hollywood Reporter first reported this news. Um, and this was uh, given to us from... I don't have the, the author, so I apologize for that. So I... Oh, Derek Lawrence. Derek Lawrence gave, gave us this. So I... I have given my review on The Long Walk. It's one that I liked when I first read it when I was a teenager. Um, it's one that when I read it again as adults, it feels like it was written by a younger um, a younger person who is going upon their own long walk of life and philosophy. And it just it sounds like it's written by a college kid. Um, I, I, to me, it doesn't, doesn't hold up. I don't see how they're going to make this into a movie, quite frankly, because... The only way that it would be true to itself is if it really is just a long walk and it's a drama um, in which these teenagers are walking down a road which functions as a metaphor for life and you have you know the, the authority standing on the outside and every time someone tries to break a rule, they wind up getting murdered for it. Um, and as they walk, they just talk about their hopes and dreams and fears. That's kind of what the long walk is. And I'm worried that in this day and age, it's just going to be, we're going to lean into the dystopian future. The best part of the long walk is the fact that King is able to create the idea of this world without spending too much time in it. We are, we spend, the time that we spend is on a stretch of road with teenagers. And that's identifiable. The conversations that they have every now and then will, you know, indicate you know the, the the society as it as it is, but everything they talk about is universal. Um, so I like the way that through these these snippets of conversation um, and these these pieces, we're able to put together what the world must be like. But it doesn't dwell in that world; it dwells with the kids that are going on this walk. So I worry that it's going to try and be sensationalized, which is going to take away from what the whole thing is. It's literally kids walking down the road. I don't know how exciting that is to be able to watch it, but that's kind of what it needs to be in order for it to be the long walk. And yeah, like I said, I just think that it needs to be a, a drama, drama set against a dystopian future without a lot of action. So good luck. I, I don't think it's going to work out very well. Um, I know there's a lot of Long Walk fans out there. Um, I'm not the biggest. I used to be. I'm not anymore. But um, but I don't know. We'll, time will tell. Okay, keeping um, within... I should have structured this a little bit differently because I'm going to be talking about uh, Joe Hill again. I should have 
you know, done the Stephen King news and then um, went into uh, in the tall grass and then led to this. So I have, there's two pieces of Joe Hill news that I want to share with all you guys. And the first is kind of a bummer, which is, and this is from Deadline, um, written by Nelly uh, Andriva, who writes, Lock and Key not going to series at Hulu as streamer pauses pilot orders. A second consecutive TV series adaptation of Joe Hill's comic Lock and Key has not been able to go past the pilot stage. Hulu has passed on its Lock and Key pilot from Hill, Carlton Cuse, and IDW Entertainment. I hear Hulu also passed on pilot Crash and Burn, which tackled the topic of school shootings in December. Lock and Key and Crash and Burn were among the last remaining hour-long Hulu pilots as the streaming platform had been ramping up to a straight-to-series order. That is not a permanent shift in development strategy as Hulu still plans to go through a pilot stage on some projects. The last Hulu pilot to go to series was Marvel's Runaways. Written by Hill and directed by its Andy Muschietti, Lock and Key was ordered to pilot in April before the top executive changes at Hulu, which included Joel Stillerman coming in as chief content officer and Randy Freer as CEO. The pass on the pilot came after Hulu's creative team, who had supported it, had given the project a blinking green light, setting up a full writer's room that produced six to seven backup scripts and having the sets built with everyone ready to go. The pilot had been shopped around, according to co-star Samantha Mathis, who revealed in a recent interview that Lock and Key was not picked up by Hulu. It's getting shopped around to Amazon and Netflix and Apple and everyone right now. No prospective buyer is believed to be currently in negotiations about picking up the show, but there have been some discussions. Lock and Key revolves around three siblings who, after the gruesome murder of their father, move into the ancestral home in Maine. Nope. Nope. In the, ancestr- in the ancestral home in Massachusetts. Get it right, deadline, with their mother, Nina, only to find the house has magical keys that have given them a vast array of powers and abilities. Little do they know, a devious demon also wants the keys and will stop at nothing to attain them. The pilot's cast also includes Nate Cordry, Jackson Robert Scott, Megan Charpentier, Owen Teague, Jack Mullern, and Danny Glover. Lock and Key has been a hard concept to crack as a TV series. It previously was adapted during the 2010-2011 development season when it reached the pilot stage at Fox with Josh Friedman writing, Mark Romanek directing, and Alex Kurtzman and Roberto Orchi producing alongside DreamWorks TV. While the pilot, starring Sarah Bolger, Miranda Otto, and Nick Stahl did not go to series, the title has remained a cult favorite with Hill and IDW Entertainment in 2016 announcing that they were taking a new stab at it for television. The unaired Fox pilot also screened at Comic-Con in 2011. So, guys, just so you know, I have Lock and Key fresh in my brain because I just finished my reread of Lock and Key, which I was going to announce at the end, but I'm going to announce it now, is going to be one part of the what to expect in the Stephen King cast going forward. It's just a matter of when I'm going to record the episodes and get them out, um, how I structure them, um, in terms of what I, I have planned and how it's going to um, lead into the Castle Rock um, reviews that will come out once Castle Rock hits um, this summer. I, I'm not quite sure, but Lock and Key is great. It is great, and it is ridiculous that we have not been able to see a Lock and Key adaptation. I'm really looking forward to seeing it on the screen. And I am grateful that it did not go to Fox back in 2011 because I recently, after after reading um, Lock and Key, I remember hearing everyone talking about how much they liked the, the, the pilot um, that screened at Comic-Con. And so I watched the trailer, and it looks dreadful. It looks really bad. I mean, it also, you know, we're... 
seven years removed at this point from 2011. And so the, 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 the pilot itself with the advertising um, and the acting and the sensibilities, it, it, it just kind of hues, um, you know, it's 2011, but it feels, you know, 2005, six, seven. Um, it just felt bad. I mean, we're, we're talking about like the, remember the, Remember the TNT Stephen King projects that came out in the early 2000s? That's what it felt like. And that's fresh in my brain because I watched a little bit of Nightmares and Dreamscapes because I was going to get ready for a... That was going to be a part of the, the, the summer um, episodes. And I got through two episodes. I'm like, I'm not putting myself through this. This is awful. Awful. So that's kind of what it felt like. Um, but it really is too bad because Lock and Key um, would be great. And um, I hope that it does land somewhere that will give it love. Um, I don't know. I don't know what the hang-up is. Probably the, the cost of the money. I mean, the, the lock house set, the house, is going to cost a, enough. And then with the special effects that are going to come with the use of each key, um, in order to really crack the magic component, I mean, you need to be able to show some, spe- some special effects, which is going to cost some money. So I assume that, yeah, it's not going to be a cheap show. But, I mean, with Amazon like shilling out a billion dollars for Lord of the Rings, um, or 200, however... So five hundred million um, for Lord of the Rings, and I think that somewhere out there can can pull up a, a lock and key um, miniseries or a series. Okay, and then lastly, um, though we are talking about summer, uh, let's look even further ahead to, to Christmas time, um, and and let's let's talk about Christmas Land. So from Deadline again uh, with Nelly Andriva writes uh, Nosferatu horror drama based on Joe Hill's book gets AMC series order. So unfortunately for Joe Hill, even though he doesn't have lock and key. Um, Coming out, uh, he does have In the Tall Grass, and he has Nosferatu. And hopefully between Nosferatu and In the Tall Grass, that will help give him a boost. Um, and, you know, with the, the name of Stephen King being the it property right now, hopefully that will rub off on his son a little bit, and people will want to adapt, you know, his works, whether it be Lock and Key or Horn. Oh, there he did Horns, or... Um, Heart-shaped box, which again, I don't know how that hasn't been made into a movie or loaded um, or rain. You know, anything that he has done. Um, <sighs> Pop art. <laughs> um, so, I mean, the the guy is great. The cape. Um, and, and I would love to see him start to get his chance to shine here. But anyway, we, we have an opportunity with Nosferatu. AMC has given a 10-episode straight-to-series order to supernatural horror drama Nosferatu based on the best-selling novel of the same name by Joe Hill. The project, produced by AMC Studios in association with Michael Eisner's Tornante Television, was created by Jamie O'Brien, who will serve as showrunner. Nosferatu, which will debut in 2019, was one of three drama projects AMC opened Um, Writers' Rooms 4 last summer under the network's script-to-series development model, which involves the writing of multiple scripts for a series order consideration. Nosferatu had long been considered the front-runner while no final decision had been made on the fate of the other two, Pandora and Silent History. Current AMC series that have come out of the scripts-to-series model include The Sun and the upcoming Dietland and Lodge 49. 
Nosferatu introduces Vic McQueen, a young working-class artist who discovers she has a supernatural ability to track the seemingly immortal Charlie Manx. Manx feeds off the souls of children and deposits what remains of them into Christmasland, a twisted Christmas village of Manx's imagination, where every day is Christmas Day and unhappiness is against the law. Vic must strive to defeat Manx and rescue his victims without losing her mind or falling herself victim to him. Nosferatu continues in AMC's rich tradition of immersing dramas that combine otherworldly stories with relatable relationships and emotional themes, said David Madden, president of original programming for AMC, Sundance TV, and AMC Studios. Jamie O'Brien and the writing team have vibrantly brought Joe Hill's incredible story to life for the small screen, and we are pleased to be making this diabolically unique show under the AMC Studios shingle in association with Tornante. Hill and O'Brien executive produced Nosferatu to, along with Lauren Carano, co-president of the television. I couldn't be more excited about forthcoming adaptation of Nosferatu. I know that it's in good hands with showrunner Jamie O'Brien. Her beautifully composed scripts show a writer at the height of her powers, one who has an exquisite touch with character and a relentless instinct for suspense. AMC's record speaks for itself. Who wouldn't want to be in business with Mad Men who broke bad and made the dead walk? And Tarante's dedication to bringing singular visions to TV has freed everyone involved to do their best and truest work. I can't wait to see Vic McQueen turn the throttle and go after Charlie Manx in 2019. Let's ride. Um, that is a great um, pitch piece. Um, but uh, yeah, I am excited. I'm excited for Nosferatu. I think that being 10 episodes... It's all you need. It does not need to be more than one season. Ten, ten episodes will give you enough to tell the, the, the entirety of Vic's story and actually probably delve into Charlie's backstory as seen in the Wraith miniseries from IDW Comics. All right, guys, so I'm going to wrap it up now with that. Um, but before I go, I, I want to give a sort of glimpse into what to expect for the this season of the Stephen King cast. So here are a couple things to keep an eye and an ear out for. One, I'm going to review all of the short stories that I didn't get a chance to review the first time around. So I've already done that with um, Night Shift. So I'm going to pick up where I left off with Skeleton Crew. Um, and then there are some movies that I will be reviewing that I never got around to the, the first time around, so um, that, that'll be fun. Also, I will be reviewing uh, the short stories of Nightmares and Dreamscapes and Everything's Eventual and Just After Sunset. Um, I will also be reviewing Mr. Mercedes because I had time to be able to watch all of Mr. Mercedes. I, I had put out my review of the first two episodes last year and I just, I, they were free online and I never subscribed to Direct TV. Um, and watching Mr. Mercedes was a, was a great treat for me. So I'll be reviewing all of Mr. Mercedes. And this summer, um, we are fortunate to be getting Castle Rock. There's been a lot of talk about Castle Rock. I didn't even touch the trailer. The, the new trailer came out. So I will be reviewing each of the episodes of Castle Rock when, when that comes in July. So that will be very exciting for all of us. And also, um, very, very exciting, as I mentioned earlier, Lock and Key. 
So I am going to be reviewing each of the issues of Joe Hill's and Gabriel Rodriguez's uh, comic Lock and Key published by IDW. So just so you know, if you want to follow along and you want to read Lock and Key if you haven't done so already, I will be reviewing each of the uh, collections, um, otherwise known as trade paperbacks um, or volumes, call them what you will, um, but each story arc is collected in um, subsequent uh, collections, and I will be reviewing each of those, beginning with Volume 1, um, Welcome to Lovecraft, um, all the way through Alpha. And um, I had such a blast being able to go back and reread Lock and Key, because I remember loving that series when I first read it, and it's something that I had been looking forward to rereading. I had some time, and I just blew through it, um, and I have a lot of thoughts um, and a lot to say about Joe Hill and uh, Gabriel Rodriguez's Lock and Key. So there's a lot. There's a lot to look forward to. Oh, and I even mentioned The Outsiders. Stephen King has a new book coming out um, very, very shortly, at the, by the end of this month. So um, sometime in early June, I would expect a review um, from me um, about Stephen King's latest book. So there's a lot. There's a lot. And um, that means that you're going to be getting a lot of the Stephen King cast. And for those of you who are also fans of David Lynch's Twin Peaks, David Lynch and Mark Frost's Twin Peaks, then you are in luck because not only will you get weekly episodes of the Stephen King cast, you will also get weekly episodes of my new podcast, Hanging with Agent Cooper, in which I uh, discuss and analyze um, each of the episodes in last year's Twin Peaks The Return. Now that the show is, is complete um, and we have come to a conclusion with Twin Peaks The Return, um, I'm going back to it and reviewing each of the episodes and trying my best to make sense out of what uh, Lynch and Frost gave us. So beginning on May 21st, running weekly um, on the anniversary of when each of the episodes aired, I will be reviewing um, that particular episode. So I'm very excited about it, um, and I'm very excited about the Stephen King cast. I'm very excited uh, for, for you to join me, um, I guess, like I said, this season of, of the Stephen King cast. So everyone, um, thanks for tuning in, and like I said earlier, if you haven't done so already, feel free to write in to StephenKingCast at Yahoo.com to share all your thoughts. You can also share on all of your um, thoughts regarding Twin Peaks, and I will... Um, Make sure that that gets on the air of Hanging with Asian Cooper. If you haven't left a review for Stephen King cast, um, that would help me out immensely. Um, so just uh, follow me on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. And may you have long days and pleasant nights. And I will see you here next week where M-O-O-N spells Stephen King cast. Mm-hmm.